It's time to think bigger. Elias Pedersen scores! And think bolder. Matthew Kachuk, what a goal! This is Rintoul and Sermon. Another chance, great save by Markstrom. There is shot me back, great save by Timko. On the Sportsnet Radio Network. What's going on? How's your Thursday? Scott Rintoul and Jamie Dodd with you for a fourth consecutive time this week. And we're back in both markets as we combine both sides of the Rockies. That means both text message inboxes are open. 650-650-960-960. We hope you're off to a great start. We're going to make your day better. Jamie Dodd, how are you today, my friend? I'm doing fantastic, Scotty. Doing great. Excited to uh, get into the show today. There's a lot of stuff to get into, despite it being, for some, a relatively slow time in the sports calendar. And we begin with some CFL news today, because since we all last got together, a couple of things have changed. When we were doing a two-market show on Tuesday, we had no idea the BC Lions would be under new ownership prior to their Week 3 game against the Edmonton Elks, which kicks off the CFL schedule for Week 3 tonight at BC Place. And we had no idea that Michael O'Connor wasn't going to be the starting quarterback for the Calgary Stampeders Friday night against the Montreal Alouettes. Dave Dickinson wasn't lying when he told Ryan Pinder earlier this week, well, I know everybody else has made a decision on who our starter is, but we're still evaluating. It's going to be Jake Mayer on Friday night for the Stamps. Yeah, and it's a little disappointing. I mean, you and I were, were having some fun talking about what a good opportunity this was for a Canadian quarterback and what that could potentially mean for the CFL to have a Canadian quarterback, you know, with a shot like this to be the short-term starter anyways for a team. And it doesn't mean we won't see Michael O'Connor in some action with the Calgary Stampeders while Bo Levi Mitchell is healing up. But you're right. I mean, Dave Dickinson told us. He told us, and he wasn't lying, and they've, they've followed through on that here. Yep, Jake Mayer listed as the starter on the depth chart today for the Stamps. So that story, as far as another Canadian quarterback starting, that hits the back burner. Nathan Rourke has started for the BC Lions. He was thrust into action in week one. Probably doesn't start tonight as long as Michael Riley feels good enough to go, but I suppose we'll see. That's been the case with the BC Lions each and every time out. The good news about that story to me, the silver lining, and Dave Dickinson has always operated this way. You earn your stripes. He's not going to throw a Canadian quarterback on his depth chart just to have some sort of marketing ploy. He didn't do it with Andrew Buckley. He's not doing it with Michael O'Connor. If Michael O'Connor gets into the game, if Michael O'Connor gets some starts, it's going to be because he earned it, and that's the way it should be. Yeah, that's completely fair. This is not you know, a, a referendum on Michael O'Connor's ability to play in the CFL. It's not a negative answer to that question, right? This is just what's going to be best for the Stampeders in their game this week. But I would expect it to be a fluid situation and for Michael O'Connor to continue to get the opportunity to earn a starting spot here. A lot of optimism in BC, something we'll hear about later in the show. For those who missed it yesterday, if you weren't tuned in, if you were doing the Calgary market only thing, the Lions have a new owner. His name's Amar Doman, and you'll hear from him a little later on in the program. For me, top of the list as far as sports go last night, actual sports that were played. We will leave Draymond and KD out of this for the time being in their interview that aired yesterday on Draymond Green's new show, Chips. Shohei Otani... He hits another benchmark this season. He leads the major leagues in round trippers. Have a listen. Oh, Tony got it. He got it. Number 40. A franchise record for left-handed hitters. Three to one halos. Oh, uncle. Shohei Otani, number 40. (laughs) 
seven incredible innings on the mound, and he just smashes a baseball a mile. <laughs> hey, is there ever a drop the mic moment in baseball? That might be it right there with that swing yeah. to show. Hey, yeah. Oh, and he'd add another inning on the mound, Jamie. He would go eight strong in getting his latest victory as well. Eight and one, I believe, now on the season. 40 home runs. Showed a little swag when he went into the dugout. Was having some fun with his teammates as they were all dapping him up and high five. And I always call you the Shohei Otani of this program, so it's only fair <laughs> that you comment on this accomplishment. Well, and that might be, and first of all, and I've said this before, but uh, you started calling me that in the early days of this season before we really had a sense of what kind of season he was going to put together. And I, I don't think I have lived up to uh, the Shohei Otani nickname since then, but I still appreciate it. And there's been a bunch of moments in this season from Shohei Otani that have felt like kind of exclamation points. But this one yesterday, you know, just the fact that it's his 40th home run, he does it in a game where he's also pitching, and it's one of his strongest outings on the mound as well, right? Eight innings strong, eight strikeouts, only the one earned run. As you say, pushes his record to eight and one. His ERA is under three. It's to see him hit his league-leading 40th home run while also going out there and being an ace in the very same game. It really just it, it sums it up. It's incredible to witness what we are witnessing this year. It certainly is, and we might never see it again. There's no way we can guarantee health. There's no way to know whether Otani decides to focus on one over the other in subsequent seasons, but it's just fun to sit back and watch. And you use the word incredible. It's the adjective I've used as well. And for baseball fans out there, it's tough to compare this to anything else. You hear about Babe Ruth. Well, none of us saw Babe Ruth. None of us saw Babe Ruth. We see all footage. We can go over stats. But it's fair to say that this is one of the most incredible baseball seasons from one player that we'll ever witness in our lifetimes. There are some that would make the argument, Jamie, that this is the best individual season they've ever seen. And that's comparing to Bonds. That's com No matter what you think about the steroids, that's comparing to Miggy hitting for the Triple Crown. There's a bunch of seasons you can throw in there as a baseball fan. This one might be at the top of the list for a lot of people. Well, I think there's a very, very strong argument that it is at the top of the list just because of the difficulty of, you know, playing both pitching, pitcher and hitting at the plate full season, right? Full time doing both. And it's not even something that has been rarely done or, oh, yeah, you can do that, but it's really hard to do. We didn't think it was possible. We, we literally thought it was impossible. If you had suggested it before Shohei Otani burst onto the scene, I think people would have laughed at you. And he's not only doing it, like if he was doing it and he had, you know, 20 home runs now and he was pitching like, you know, a good number three pitcher, that would be an incredible accomplishment. That would be one of the most impressive feats we've seen in baseball in a long time. But the fact that he is elite, elite level at both, he is leading the league in home runs, one of the most feared hitters in the league and an extremely good high end top of the rotation pitcher as well. It's really hard to even put it into words how unlikely this would have seemed. If you had pitched this to somebody just a few years ago, it would have seemed basically impossible. Pardon the pun. Donkey the Roofer gets in early, 650, 650, or 969, 60. And Donkey the Roofer says Otani is the next trout. He's a superstar player on a crap team. Interesting that they're on the same crap team. That doesn't get near enough attention. 
get him out of Anaheim, says Donkey the Roofer. And this underscores a point that you wanted to make, that as great as Otani is, and as much as we're talking about him, and as much as his name has become household across North America, if not globally, you feel as though he still somewhat might be underrated. I I do. I, I really think we are still struggling to kind of find the words and find the proper historical context for what he's doing. And he look, he has been undoubtedly the story and the name of this Major League Baseball season. He's gotten a lot of recognition. I think, you know, the comparison to Mike Trout is an interesting one because, yeah, Mike Trout's been the best player in baseball for a long time, but his achievements are also you know, they're, they're of a type that we're used to seeing, right? A really good hitter and a really good defender, really good base runner. We've seen great all-around players before. Otani is getting more attention than I think Trout ever has because his accomplishments are unique. But yeah, I agree. He's in that rare category of athletes that get a ton of hype and a ton of attention and people rave about them and they win MVPs. And yet you still feel like we're not quite properly appreciating. This is a historical achievement by Shohei Otani, and I think everyone who follows the sport is still trying to precisely wrap their heads around just what he's doing. So if you're a baseball fan, you can compare and contrast it to other incredible seasons that you've seen in your lifetime. I mentioned a couple of them. Maybe there are different ones for you. And because Otani is so unique, it's tough to compare. And, Jamie, it's tough to compare against sports, but we're here for the tough comparisons. And maybe you can't settle on one, but something you and I landed on last night that we want to discuss here, and we want you in on this. 960-960-650-650. What are the greatest seasons that you have seen across sports in your lifetime? Or that you go back and say, wow, I would have loved to have seen that. That was incredible. And maybe you have one that stands above others. Maybe that's because it's your favorite sport. I know we got so many hockey fans, and the immediate jump for many will be, well, Wayne Gretzky. Wayne Gretzky. Now, if we look at Wayne Gretzky, Jamie, his most incredible season to me isn't the 215-point season, which is the record still. It's actually the 212-point season, which he achieved in 81-82, because that's the season in which he scored 92 goals. Yeah. That record still stands today at 50-39. and 39. Wayne Gretzky getting 92 and having another 120 assists and 212 points. That is, for many, the greatest season in NHL history. And that's the the first text we get into our inbox on the Vancouver side, 650-650, simply says Gretzky's 50 in 39. And, yeah, for our listenership, Scotty, which is, of course, you know, more prone to tune into hockey than anything else, I think we're going to get that answer a lot. And it's a very good answer. That's an incredible record. Yeah, it's in the offensive inflated era of the 80s, but still, you're probably never going to see those records fall, or at least the sport's going to look very, very different if you do. So, It's understandable. It makes a lot of sense. There's a reason why that is going to jump to the top of mind for a lot of our listeners. If you're going to compare another hockey season, maybe it's Bobby Orr, the year that he won the heart. Oh, by the way, he got the Art Ross that year. Yeah, defenseman leading the league in scoring. He won the Norris. He also won the Conn Smythe. So if you want to go hardware on the situation, and obviously Gretzky never won a Norris, wasn't really eligible for that trophy, you could throw that in there as well. Maybe some of our longtime hockey fans would go there. But as we look at some of the great seasons across sport and we get outside of hockey, and that's okay if that's your answer and that's where you want to go, What are other seasons that strike you as being, I don't know, we'll ever see that again. I don't know that anyone will ever top that. Or I wish I could have been there to see that if we're going further back in time. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot. And as you say, it's so hard to compare 
between sports and sometimes even between positions in sports. I I, I went down the uh, the football road a little bit here, and again, it's it's a running back season that I'm about to mention. So you know, we tend to scoff at ah, it's a running back, how valuable they can real can they really be? But remember, Ladainian Tomlinson in 2006 had over 1,800 rushing yards, which is very impressive, but 28 <laughs> rushing touchdowns, 28 rushing touchdowns in a season, went for another 500 yards in the air, and oh yeah, three receiving touchdowns as well to crack the 30 touchdown mark for the season, averaged almost two touchdowns a game for an entire season. I know touchdowns aren't the only you know mark of value for a running back, but I mean, he racked up the yards, he was incredibly efficient, he was a workhorse, so yeah, it's a running back season, but when I just think of great individual performances by a football player or by a professional athlete, you know, in my memory, certainly in my time watching sports, that's one that's at the top of the list for me. Is that better than Adrian Peterson getting 2,000 or Derrick Henry getting 2,000 or even as much as we don't like to mention his name for obvious reasons outside of the sport, O.J. Simpson getting 2,000 yards in 14 games on the ground? Is that a better running back season than what you mentioned with LaDainian Tomlinson? I would I would lean towards the touchdown totals there, but I considered those other seasons you're talking about as well, and especially the Adrian Peterson one is incredible. Yeah, I, I I just I just can't get past looking at it, seeing a guy have 30 touchdowns in a season. Like it's it's just insane to me. So I lean towards LT in that conversation, but this is the this is the thing, right? It can be really really hard to compare and split these hairs when you're talking about the greatest individual seasons of all time. I'm gonna tell you what hurts his case. That being LaDainian Thompson in that running back yeah. conversation. Sean Alexander hurts his case. The season before LT got those 28 on the ground and three through the air, Sean Alexander had over 1,800 yards rushing. He had 27 touchdowns. Yep. On the ground, he wasn't much of a receiver. He only had one through the air, but he had 28 the year before. So not that it's easy, and we haven't seen people putting up <laughs> those kind of numbers yeah. since, but it happened in back-to-back years, and well. Tomlinson's year was a little bit better. Alexander had just just done it. I don't have those as my greatest running back season. The place we often go in, in football is quarterbacks anyway. Is there Has there been a better season in the NFL at quarterback than Peyton Manning in 2013? Everybody's got their favorites, and Patriots fans and Brady fans will probably go back to 2007 when he put yeah. up out-of-the-world numbers and hit 50 touchdowns. But Peyton Manning has the single-season passing mark. He had 40, uh, pardon me, 54-77 that year, 5,477 yards through the air. That's better than Drew Brees by one yard. He had 55 touchdown passes, Jamie, and only 10 interceptions. Has anyone had a better season at the helm than that? No, he'd be my pick for a quarterback. And the Tom Brady argument is really strong. Um, but as you say, you set the single-season yards record and the single-season touchdown record, and you're hyper-efficient doing it. You don't throw that many picks. You complete a ridiculous percentage of your passes. Uh, I, I got to go Peyton Manning there. We've got a lot of texts coming in. I want to get to some of them as well. Someone said, pick a year of Tiger dominance. Don't worry. We were going to get to Tiger. Yeah, Tiger's on our list. How about Tiger in 2000? That's arguably his most dominant campaign, though I'm sure we will have some Tiger aficionados text and say, actually, I think it's this year. That year, Tiger won three majors. The only one he didn't get was the Masters that year. He won nine tournaments that year as well, Jamie. And it's not just that he won. It's the way he won those yeah. majors. The U.S. Open, he won by 15 strokes. <laughs> that is insane. Yeah. Basically, hey, I'll give you guys another day 
and you still won't catch me. Maybe I'll give you two more, and you still won't catch me. He won the U.S. Open by 15 strokes. He won the Open Championship by nine strokes that year. He was a little bored by the time he got to the PGA, so he went into a playoff, and he actually got the Wanamaker in the final major of the season. But Tiger in 2000 is probably the year I would pick if we were going to pick a year of Tiger dominance. Yeah, that's the year I would go with as well. As soon as we threw this topic out there, one of the first texts we got to the Calgary inbox, 960-960, was Woods, the year he won the U.S. Open by 15. And I remember that entire season for the reasons you're laying out. And yeah, as you say, three majors, six other tournament wins too, which is incredibly impressive on the PGA Tour. But specifically that U.S. Open, when he basically lapped the field, that's the most dominant single performance I've ever seen by a golfer. And I know we're talking about a season and, it, you know, it fits into his dominant 2000. But that's the exclamation point really on Tiger's career for me is just looking at the scoreboard on Sunday and seeing how the distance between him and the field. And it just felt like you were watching. It felt like you were watching the greatest golf performance ever. Right. And, you know, I wasn't alive to watch Jack Nicholas or guys of that era, but I will always remember just staring in awe at that leaderboard. I could not believe what he was doing. Tiger's got the tiger slam and he never got all four in the same season. It's so hard to do. And I think some people consider that, getting the Grand Slam. Some people say, no, it's not quite the same. You've got to do it in the same calendar year. Steffi Graf, back in 88. Not everybody will remember this. I certainly remember Steffi Graf in her prime. How about this for Steffi Graf in women's tennis? She got all four Grand Slams and the Olympic gold back in 88. That is one that you threw in the rundown that would not have come to mind for me, but I'm glad you put it in because it's incredible. And the Olympic gold is really just the capper there. And, you know, you can talk about a ton of great athletes in tennis, in golf, who have not been able to to win the yearly Grand Slam, right? Winning all four in one year. So not only did she do that, but then, oh, yeah, she went over and added some Olympic gold to her resume as well. So we've got people sending in some incredible team performances as well. We'll get to those. You can filter those in. We're talking mainly about individual performances on the basis of Shohei Otani, but I'm happy to go a different part of this branch. I'm happy to go down that road. We'll get there. I did want to compare quickly Steffi Graf to Serena Williams, who is the most dominant tennis player of all time, but she didn't get all four in the same year. She did the Tiger Slam thing twice. She got four Grand Slams in a row, but she never got them all in the same calendar year. And I was looking at those two and comparing and contrasting. And probably the best year of Serena is 0203, if you want to span it over two seasons. So in 02, she got the last three Grand Slam events. She didn't get the Aussie because she wasn't participating in that tournament. But she did the Tiger Slam thing where she won four straight after getting three in 02. Then she won the Aussie in 03. She actually won five of six. And in those Grand Slam matches over that span, Serena Williams went 40 and one. Pretty good. Pretty good. A stretch of the, the five Grand Slam wins in six tournaments. That's the one, the number that really sticks out for me there. That, the You just think of how hard it is to win one in a season, two in a season. To go five of six over a stretch like that, that's the number that sums it up for me. Federer did it a couple of times where he won three Grand Slams in the same season. 05 and 06, I believe, are the years. Or maybe it was 02 and 06. I think it was 05, 06, but... Those were two of the best seasons ever in men's tennis. Rod Laver got all three Grand Slams. It was a different era. 
Roger operated in the golden era of tennis. Djokovic got three or four Grand Slams in 2015 as well. I have Roger Federer in 2006, just a shade ahead of Joker in 2015 for the greatest season of men's tennis I have ever seen. But we could also see Novak Djokovic in subsequent years blow that away. Yeah, we absolutely could. Uh, I wanted to get this one in here as well because it touches on a, a guy I think you wanted to bring up, Scotty. And it's into the world of, in the world of basketball, and this texture says, all I hear is Jordan this and Jordan that when it comes to basketball, but I wonder what Wilt Chamberlain looked like in 1961. He averaged, averaged 50 points and 25 rebounds per game. He must have made the game look silly that year. And, Scotty, I know when we go down these kind of memory, memory lane topics like this, we tend to stick to guys that we saw play. Mm -hmm. That's not the case of Wilt Chamberlain, but that's the case where you go back and look at the box scores – and his stat line, and it's just so dominant that, okay, I didn't see him play. I don't know really what that looked like, but you have to include him because the stats are just so goofy. Yeah, they're overwhelming. I brought this up when Steph Curry set the all-time scoring mark for the Warriors a few months ago, and we celebrated Steph Curry, and so we should. But it was after breaking Wilt Chamberlain's record, and Wilt Chamberlain played a fraction of the number of games. Yeah. And you talk about how good he was. The texter brought up those stats. 50.45 four points on average over 50 on points average. a game on yeah. average that's the year they had 100 points in a single game and 26 boards almost 25.7 boards per night think of that and i know it was a different time and i know he was physically dominant but that doesn't really matter the man still put up those digits i love michael jordan he's my guy he's at the top of my list but there's no season that's better than that is there no, it feels like the kind of numbers that, you know, who pick whoever you want in the NBA would put up if they went down to the NCAA for a season or something, right? Or, you know, what would happen if you sent Connor McDavid back to Major Junior for a year, right? It feels like those kinds of numbers, but he was doing it against other NBA players. I mean, he was going up against, like, Bill Russell in a bunch of those games, right? One of the best defensive players of all time. He was still putting up numbers like that. You know I'm a CFL guy. We opened the show with some CFL news. Thought we needed to get that in to update our listeners as we are into CFL season right now. So I'm not going to let this one go by without mentioning Doug Flutie back in 1991. The Lions played an insane amount of overtime games. Yeah, this is Doug Flutie with the Lions, his first team in the Canadian Football League before he left for Calgary after this season. And not surprisingly, Doug Flutie won the MVP that year. Jamie, I mentioned how many yards Peyton Manning threw for, and they are different games, and Flutie played more games, and he played a ton of overtime games that year. But Peyton Manning threw for nearly 5,500 yards. Doug Flutie threw for over 6,600 yards in 1991. <laughs> 66-19 yards through the air. He had 38 touchdown passes. Well, that's far less than Manning's 55. Fair, but Flutie also ran for 14 touchdowns that year. He had over 600 yards rushing that year. It's one of the craziest things I've ever seen. He was untouchable, and the Lions weren't great as a team, and that actually benefited his individual stats because he kept having to play late into games yeah. and play overtime games and pile these numbers up. Yeah, 14 rushing touchdowns is ridiculous, <laughs> and 6,600 6, yards. Like, come on, what? <laughs> That's just, that is just a wild number. 
Not surprisingly, we have great response to this in our text message inboxes, 960-960-650-650. We will get those into the show. This is a topic that's going to continue throughout the duration of the show today. We've got some NHL news to get to, and yes, there's going to be a gold medal handed out soon. We'll talk about that next with Haley Salvian of The Athletic on Rintoul and Sermon with Jamie Dodd. Now back to Rintoul and Sermon. We said off the top of the show, Dave Dickinson wasn't lying. When he told the morning show in Calgary in the last couple of days, look, we're still evaluating. Don't just assume Michael O'Connor is starting on Friday night. We told you that off the top of the show, and it will be Jake Mayer at the helm for the Calgary Stampeders. Jamie, Owen Power wasn't lying either. We now have confirmation as what he as to what he plans to do this coming hockey season. Yeah, and it is not unlike the vast, vast majority of first overall picks. He will not be playing in the NHL, at least not for the vast majority of the season. He's going back to the University of Michigan for another campaign there. The last number one overall pick in the NHL not to play in his first eligible season is Eric Johnson. Eric Johnson went the college route as well. He's the 2006 first overall pick by the St. Louis Blues. Owen Powers the first since then. Alexander Ovechkin technically didn't play the year after, but that's only because of the lockout. He played in his first yeah. eligible season. So Eric Johnson and Owen Power are the only players this century. Uh, a list that begins with Rick DiPietro in 2000, where he went straight to the Islanders as well. Every other first overall pick has gone there. There will be some, Jamie, that quickly want to say, well, this is because of the Buffalo Sabres. Are you one of those? I think it is partly because of the Buffalo Sabres, but not necessarily in the extremely negative sense that a lot of people will mean that. I don't know that it's about the dysfunction around the organization as much as it is necessarily, okay, if you're looking at it, what's the best way for Owen Power to develop? Is it on a very bad NHL team or is it in college again? And I think it's a fair, especially for a defenseman. I think it's interesting that the other guy is Eric Johnson, right? Who's another big, you know, rough and tumble NHL defenseman with a lot of upside as well. I, I think it's interesting that those are the two guys that decided to go back to college, decided not to play in the NHL in, in their first eligible year as first overall picks. It makes sense that Owen Power needs a little extra development and it makes sense that do you the asking the question of do you want to do that in a poor situation in the NHL? But I don't think it's because he looks at Buffalo and says, "Oh, I never want to play for that team. What a disaster! I can't believe I'm going there." I think it's much more about what's best for my development next year. Yeah, we're not going down Eric Lindros Lane quite yet. No, not yet. I agree with that assessment, and maybe that's what some members of the Buffalo Sabers think as well. Look, this is going to be a tough season for us. It's actually probably better for you to go develop for another year at Michigan. It could be as simple as Owen Power saying, "I want the full college experience. I didn't really yep. get that last year. I got to play. I had some great opportunities, but I didn't get a full college year, and that's something I really want in my life." It's not going to hurt his draft status unlike a guy like Matt Leinart, for example, who would have been the number 1 overall pick coming out of UFC. USC, I should say, in football, had he not decided to go back and be part of that powerhouse team, and then he falls to number 10, and obviously things didn't work out at the pro level. We hope that's not the case for Owen Power. I'm with you. This just might be a view from his camp, and maybe the Sabres are in on that, of saying, hey, best thing for my development personally is to go to Michigan this year. Want to turn our attention to some hockey that is actually getting played, and it gets going for real tomorrow. Jamie, think of how long you have waited to go to a live sporting event. It's probably been about 18 months, something yep, like that. It sure has. It sure has. Some of you are still waiting. Maybe some of you have been. Maybe some of you who are listening 
in Calgary have gone to a Stampeders game already. Maybe there are some of you out there listening who are going to a BC Lions game tonight. You're excited to go to your first live sporting event in a very long time. The women who are playing at the World Championships, as noted by Haley Salvian of The Athletic, who's about to join us here on the program, when the puck drops tomorrow, they will have waited 859 days between international tournaments. The World Championships get going for real in Calgary. There were tune-up games last night, and Haley Salvian joins us. Now, Haley, thank you very much for doing this. How are you? Uh, thanks for having me. I'm doing well. How are you? We are well, and thank you very much for asking. Because of what I mentioned and you noted at the top of your article in The Athletic, with the long wait to play an international game, to play a tournament of significance for these women, what sense of anticipation do you get from the women that you've spoken to in advance of these world championships? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's huge. I, I think that these players are, as you can imagine, really excited to finally get back out there. Um, you know, you think of women's hockey, and, and usually their their biggest, you know, moments of exposure is, is the Olympics and, you know, everyone kind of tunes in once every four years and um, they'll tune into the world championships and, you know, their whole calendars has been wiped out for over two years. And, you know, you look on the professional side too, and, and a lot of the players who are going to be with Canada and the U S are, are fighting for the future that they want in women's hockey as well and it's really hard to do that when when you really don't have a platform to show the product and so the players that I've talked to they're really excited to just show you know they've been training really hard for two years we haven't been able to see it but they've been training and they believe in the product and they're just excited to finally get to play in a meaningful hockey game again and 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 put that out there I think it's just I think it's a shame that we haven't gotten to to watch these women play because they're as we saw a little bit in the the kind of exhibition games yesterday there's so much skill in women's hockey and you know selfishly I'm excited that it's here in Calgary that I get to go and actually watch it in person and again these players are just they're really excited and I think we're going to see a really great product just because there's been so much anticipation for them that they're all going to show up and I think Melody Dau said it kind of perfectly she's like you know we've been waiting for so long to do this that every time we hit the ice we're really going to put on a show. Well, and I can only imagine after the, what a letdown it was a few months ago when these same championships got ultimately postponed, but at the time canceled. They were supposed to happen on the other side of the country. Everybody understood in 2020, but then when you're building and you're that close to an event and, nope, we can't do it, we're canceling it. Man, the world of women's hockey, I know there was a pretty strong backlash at the time. That must have been almost more disappointing than what happened last year. Oh, for sure, and I think... I kind of had to tread carefully with that because, you know, as somebody who covers this for the athletic, you know, I wanted to get the reaction, but most of the players that I reached out to, they were like, you know, we appreciate what you do, but it's just too raw. Like they were really, really upset and rightfully so. I mean, the rug got pulled out from under them so quickly. And so it was just so unexpected for these players. I mean, Canada was in their second round of quarantine. Um, the U.S. was in quarantine. Like, they were about to get on the bus the next day. Like, Canada was already in Halifax. The, I think it was the Czech team had just named their roster, and they were about to leave. Like, the quarantine in Nova Scotia was about to start, like, three days or something from when it got canceled. So it was such a last-minute, immediate move that it was just really shocking for, for these women. Um and they were really, really upset. Um, then they kind of started getting really angry. It was like, okay, well, 
why wasn't there a contingency plan? Like COVID's not new at this point. Why was there not a backup plan for us when you clearly had one for the U18s? And I think it kind of made it all worse that when the IHF moved the U18 tournament to Texas, some of the players, including Blair Turnbull, who's on the, the leadership group for Hockey Canada, tweeted at the IHF like, hey, do we have a contingency plan or are we just, you know, the bottom of the priority list for you? And uh, they called it out months before, knowing it was a possibility and there was no contingency plan and, and it got postponed. Uh, so it was really disappointing for them. I, I think it kind of just, it, as you can imagine, they probably felt a little undervalued by the governing bodies. But, you know, that's in the past now. And, and as I said before, they're just really excited to finally get to play again. And Haley, I think a lot of people are really excited to finally watch this tournament again because, you know, we'll, we'll get into it. And, of course, the Team Canada and Team USA rivalry is always a highlight in international hockey. But just looking at the tournament as a whole, and, and since there has been such a long layoff and it was postponed, what are you most curious about going into this tournament? Yeah, I'm, I'm really uh, interested to see the steps that a team like Finland has made in the last two years. I think that's a team who was knocking on the door for a while, and we saw their breakthrough in 2019. Obviously upsetting Canada in the, the semifinals, handing Canada their worst ever finish at any international tournament ever. Um, and, you know, what, what a lot of people think they won gold um, with that controversial goal call back and then it obviously losing in the shootout so I'm really curious to see what Finland looks like they looked really good um yesterday against Canada I, I don't think the 4-1 score was indicative of the quality of that game um I am interested to see what team Canada looks like what team USA looks like because like you said and like we've touched on we uh, you know I'm like everyone else like these players haven't played in over two years and I haven't seen most of them play in over two years I mean there's been the PWHPA showcase. There's been some training camps, but those are typically close to the public. So you're either watching on TV, you're looking at the lineup card on social media. Um, there's little highlight clips. So I'm kind of going into this pretty blind. And I, I mean, you, you feel almost unprepared um, to do the previews because it's like, well, what's the body of work that we're really looking at here heading into this? Um, so I'm just really curious to see what some of these teams look like. Um, I am really interested to see if Canada's kind of uh, turnover that they've had works. They have this interesting mix of their veterans um, with a ton of new faces that have cracked this roster and, and are also on the Olympic centralization roster. So, you know, players like Sarah Fillier and Victoria Bach and um, Emma Malte, I'm really excited to see what the young core of Canada can do and, and if those are pieces who can kind of help Canada close the gap on the Americans um, who have really kind of dominated the international competition over the last, um, you know, eight to 10 years. Well, I wanted to ask you about all of that turnover because that's one of the kind of unique impacts of the long layoff between tournaments is there is it is a substantially different team, I think, with eight newcomers versus the last time this tournament was played. And with that, as you say, you know, it's an injection of youth and, and exciting players and players with high upside, but it also comes with challenges. What's your sense of what this Canadian team wants their identity to be in this tournament? Yeah, it's a good question. It's something that I asked a lot of the players heading into this tournament was just, you know, what is 
the 2021 version of Team Canada going to look like? And the kind of common answers I got was they're going to be really fast. Um, they're going to be physical. They believe that they have a ton of skill. They think they have a lot of young up-and-coming talent. Uh, like I mentioned, I think Sarah Fillier is a, a player to watch at this tournament. She uh, she was nominated for the Patty Kazmaier Trophy when she was just a freshman at Princeton. She uh, led the nation with almost two points per game again as a freshman. She was only 18 years old, rookie of the year, you know, Ivy League championship. So, and, and she took the year off of school and actually stayed in Toronto this year to train with the national team group that was in the GTA. So this is a the youngest player on the roster who has a year under her belt of just training with like Natalie Spooner and Brianne Jenner in Toronto. So, um, you know, Emma Malte is another one to watch. You have, um, again, just a ton of young, fresh faces on this roster. And, you know, they have the 13 returning Olympians from 2018. Um, you have the usual suspects, Brianne Jenner and Spooner and Mary Philippe Poulin and, I think Canada knows that they have a lot of young players. There's seven players who have under 10 games of national team experience under their belt. Um, but that's to no fault of their own. And the general consensus I've got is if there was more hockey over the last two years, these players would have more experience. That's how good they are. They've been in the fold. They've been in the mix. They only look like rookies on paper because there haven't been any games to play. Um, so these are players who, who've been at camps, they've been training with the senior women's national team and, and they're ready. So um, that's kind of my long answer. But, you know, again, what I've really heard the most is that they're going to be young, they're going to be fast, uh, they have a ton of skill and they want to be really difficult to play against. They're going to be physical and um, that's kind of the identity that Team Canada wants to have heading into this world championship. Well, we saw that speed last night, scoring a couple of goals off the rush as well. Haley Salvian of The yeah. Athletic joining us, covering the Women's World Championships, which get going with the preliminary round beginning tomorrow in Calgary. And for everything you said about the newcomers, and I'm like you, I want to see them. I want to see how they blend with this youth, of, or this mix, I should say, of, of veteran experience. The headliner for a long time has been the woman you you name, Mary Philippe Poulin. And as I was researching this interview, I started to look back at her accomplishments, and I went, hold on a second. How is it that she's only 30 years old? How is that possible? <laughs> yeah, I know. It's it's crazy. And, you know, it's I think it's so unfortunate that, you know, one of the problems or one of the things that have come from this layoff is, you know, we've had – one, we've had, in my opinion, the best player in the world not playing for two years. Like, we have not seen Mary Philippe Poulin play in an international competition in, in more than two years, actually, because she was hurt in 2019. She played under five minutes in the 2019 World Championships. And that's just such a long time to not have a player of her caliber on, you know, an international platform. And, and, you know, I really can't speak highly enough about how big it is for Canada to have her returning to play and how big it is for women's hockey to have, I mean, not just Boulin, but, you know, Hillary Knight and Brianna Decker and all these players back on a platform. But yeah, Boulin is, again, in my opinion, the best player in the world. I wrote a story, I think, two years ago, looking at, is she actually the greatest of all time? Like, can we say that about her already? Because her accomplishments are so impressive. I mean, she's, uh, number seven in, in all-time scoring for Team Canada, I believe. Um, she's 
She has not one but two gold medal winning goals under her belt. Um, she's Canada's captain. She is just so versatile in the way she can beat you. Um, she has the speed. She's got the edges. She's got the hands. She's got the shot. Um, I, she's just an incredible hockey player. And, and you know, she's back healthy after her knee injury in 2019. And, sorry, I was outside with my dog. This was a huge mistake. There's, like, All a good. truck driving. But, <laughs> um, like, All good. Really, not good planning on my part. Like, I don't know what I was thinking. It must be my first radio interview. Maybe <laughs> yeah. I could be outside. Um, but, no, like, I, again, I can't say enough. I, I just think so highly of, of Mary Philippe Poulin's talent and her skill level. And uh, Gita Kingsbury, the director of the Canadian Women's National Team, said she's looking great. And, you know, they've seen at training camp what it's like to have a healthy Mary Philippe Poulin back in the lineup for Team Canada. And I think fans are going to see that here next week, too. And, and that's really exciting. For those fans who've been listening all morning, they, in fact, know it's your second radio hit of the day, let alone your career. So they know you've been going about it. And, by the way, that garbage truck might end up being convenient depending on what your dog is doing and where you're at in the process. So that's not yeah. necessarily a bad thing for you. I'm going to direct people to your story at The Athletic. Again, it's got a great preview of Team Canada. It's up right now, and I think people should read it in advance of the championships getting going tomorrow. And not to take away from it, but I would love it if you could fill our listeners in on what a great story this is and what this opportunity means to Canada's Rebecca Johnston. Yeah, it's awesome. I think, you know, Rebecca was one of the surprise cuts from the 2020 World Championship roster. Um, that tournament, as we know, was canceled, but they did already go through the whole tryout process in the camps and, and Team Canada thought that it would be really meaningful for the young players who actually made that roster to find out that they did. So Team Canada did announce the 2020 Women's World's roster, and Rebecca Johnson was not on it. Um, and like I said, it was really shocking because this is a player who's been on the national team since 2007-08. It's been um, a really long time that she's really been in the fold for Team Canada. She's been to nine world championships, three Olympics. Like, you know, Rebecca Johnson is, you know, synonymous with, with Hockey Canada and, and in Calgary too, you know, captain of the Calgary Inferno. She won a Clarkson, Clarkson Cup, excuse me. So just a really great hockey player. And so it's been a difficult um, 18 months for Rebecca specifically, not just because of the pandemic and being far away from home with everything on lockdown. She's from Sudbury. She's living in Calgary. Um, she gets cut from the team and then she ruptured her Achilles, which is a really serious injury. And, and I think it was an off-ice incident. It was, you know, a pretty gruesome injury is what I've been told. And um, three days after the injury, she went into surgery. And um, so she just had this time to think for herself, like, what, what do I want to do here? Am I done? Like, I just got cut. I just blew up my ankle. Um, what am I going to do? And, and she made the decision very quickly that she was going to stick with it. And, and she wanted to be one of the best in the world again. And she wanted to, to make her return to the national team. And, um, within six months after a really serious injury, she was back with Team Canada, um, back into the fold at training camp. And, and Gina Kingsbury said they, they really saw a Rebecca Johnson who took her game to a whole nother level. And, and for people who know how serious Achilles injuries are, to not just come back from that in six months, but, but to come back a better player and come back onto the national team at peak performance is really impressive. So um, this is 
it's a huge comeback for Rebecca Johnson, and it's a really great re-addition for Team Canada because, you know, if you look at the big moments, I mean, she's been there for for over a decade now. So um, having Rebecca Johnson in the fold is, is always going to be a good thing for Team Canada. Haley, the last time we saw this tournament, of course, Finland upset Canada in the semifinals, then gave the USA all they could handle in the gold medal game before settling for silver in the shootout. And, you know, as disappointing as that result was for Canada, I also know that a lot of people watching the women's game internationally have been waiting for that third country to step up and really challenge Canada and the USA on a regular basis. So in some ways, it's very good for the sport. I mean, do you expect Finland to be equally competitive again this time around? And are there some other countries that could potentially not necessarily jump up to Finland's level, but take major step forwards based on where we've seen them in the past? Yeah, I think it's great for women's hockey. I think, you know, you see the comments this time of year, you do a preview for the whole tournament. Some of the comments are like, oh, just skip ahead to the part where it's Canada and the USA. And, um, you know, the rivalry is awesome. I think it's one of the most beautiful rivalries. I think it's so special. It's one of the best in international sport. But um, having parity and having more competition and showing the depth of the women's game globally is always going to be a good thing. So Finland kind of having that upset upset was, was great for the game. And I, and I think, like I said earlier, they were knocking on the door for a while. Um, You know, their program has been good. They have one of the best defenders in the world. They had one of the best goalies in the world. Um, She's no longer with the team, but they have some, some new players um, and not exactly new players, but they have people stepping up um, on that team. And, and the exhibition game, they looked great. I mean, there was uh, the first goal that they scored was, like bar down it was it was it was a great display of skill they scored first against Canada and you kind of have this moment of like oh like are they gonna beat the Canadians again like is Finland gonna be in Canada's head again and and I think it's great for the game having that competition um is is really important so you know it gives you as a fan a reason to get up for every game not just the ones against the U.S. and um you know with Sweden being relegated you know they're not in this tournament and this is a team who um in 2006 got the silver medal at the olympics i think a lot of people thought hey is this the number three team that's going to challenge canada and the u.s because they just beat the americans and they won a silver medal here um and you know they've kind of um gone downhill certainly in the last couple of years as they're not in this tournament after being relegated so having finland kind of step up into that role is big um but again, it's hard. It's hard to say if there's going to be any surprise teams here. Again, just not having seen anyone. I, I mean, especially the way that we saw the Americans. They really dismantled the Russian Olympic Committee yesterday, six nothing, and in Canada, one four one against Finland. So I think early tournament, of course, we're going to be talking about those two a lot. And, and Finland is the number three, and I, and I think those are going to be the kind of top tier at this tournament. An excellent conversation with you as always. Haley, great piece on The Athletic. I look forward to your coverage of this tournament. I'm looking forward to watching this tournament as well. Whether you choose to be inside or outside, we will welcome you back to the program when you have time. Thank you. Sorry about the dump truck. I'll go inside next time. (laughs) It's all good. Haley Salvian of The Athletic joining us here today. Really good preview that she has up of Team Canada right now. And it's, it's great to see the mix of new blood. And we get to find out about some of these women. And one of the questions we didn't get to, and perhaps we can explore 
after this tournament or at some point later down the road of this tournament, Jamie, is that this world is happening in such close proximity to the Olympics. It does make you wonder as Canada looks forward to what they assume will be an appearance at Beijing in the early part of next year. Do some of the women who were on the cusp but didn't quite make this roster, do they have a legitimate opportunity to earn their way back and get another shot at making our, our Olympic team for Canada? Well, and that's I know there were some surprise uh, exclusions when this, the roster for this tournament was announced and the centralization roster was announced, and that's the thing. It's, it's such a tight turnaround here that I don't know if there are going to be those opportunities. This is pretty much the group they're going to be rolling with, it seems like. Yeah, maybe, and... It might depend on what opportunity these players have to play. You know, we see that with our national junior team. There's that summer selection camp, and there's always one or two players that didn't make it to that camp that somehow wind up getting an invite to main camp because they have such a strong start to their junior season or their college season. You go, oh, okay, you're on our radar now. We'll give you a look. So you hope it happens for those women if they're able to have a strong start. Again, the Women's World Hockey Championships gets going for real tomorrow in Calgary. Someone texted in. We mentioned Owen Power, the fact that he's going back to Michigan. A couple of things here. Someone texted in. What if he doesn't sign, go on the college route, signs as a free agent, poor Buffalo? Well, he's going to have to wait a couple of years to do that. Yeah. Or or if he wants to re-enter the draft, he's got to wait a couple of years. That is a massive, massive risk to take. I just don't see it going that way. Yeah, and that's what I, when we touched on it just briefly before we got Haley on the line, you know, I think people, there's this rush, and I get it because of where the Sabres are right now as an organization, right? It's easy to, to kind of jump to the worst conclusion here and say, oh my goodness, he's trying to, he's already trying to work his way out of Buffalo. He doesn't want to go there, doesn't want to report. It's, it's not necessarily any of those things. We just don't know. I would be shocked, shocked if the first overall pick goes that route. It's, you're leaving a ton of money on the table in the interim before you actually get to free agency, let alone if you're just talking about re-entering the draft, right, which then kicks your ELC in other years down the road before you can cash in on a second contract. So I, I just don't see it playing out that way. I think it's more about his development. And as you mentioned, probably wanting to get a little bit of that legit college experience as well. Well, and here's the other interesting part. This is a guy who hasn't had a chance, though he's got a world championship gold medal, he hasn't had a chance to go play in the world juniors. And now, this year, there's another opportunity that likely gets afforded to him. He can go have a strong season at Michigan. He likely goes the route that a Quinn Hughes went and signs and becomes one of those 10.2C free agents where he can't get offer sheeted, and he gets that first year on the books burned. And as has been pointed out on Twitter by Paul Hamilton, while Buffalo is not earmarked to make the playoffs and go on the type of run that this player did, Look at what going to Wisconsin for a year did for Cole Caulfield, who won the Hobie Baker. That worked out okay for Montreal. Yeah, it's not the same as returning to junior for a year, right? Where, you know, a lot of, if you're first overall pick out of major junior, you've probably put up incredible stats in that league. And you probably feel like you have nothing left to prove, right? And Owen Power was a great NCAA player, but because he's still going to be playing against a lot of guys older than him, there can still be a lot of development that happens for him at that level as we've seen with guys like Cole Caulfield, right? You you can still learn a lot playing another season at the college level, and I think that's a big that's playing a big part in this decision. We said we'd get to them, and we will. You brought it with your text about greatest individual seasons that you've ever seen across sports. Shohei Otani is the launching point for all of that, and we will get to your text next right here on Rintoul and Sermon with Jamie Dodd. You're listening to Rintoul and Sermon. I got lost last night. I really did. Not actually lost outside or lost in my own home, which, man, I told you yesterday I felt like I was getting old. Boy, that would make me feel like I was getting old and I didn't know my way around my own house <laughs> at some point, Jamie. I got lost in a few rabbit holes last night. It's got rental and Jamie Dodd. Shohei Otani hit 40. You and I 
quickly started talking about what an incredible season it was via text and what are some of the other incredible individual seasons we've seen? And I started just going down these rabbit holes, and then I'd look at my watch and, what have I been doing? I've just been going down the <laughs> rabbit holes of some of these seasons, and, and I, what time is it? Am i I got to get some sleep at some point here. It is the kind of thing, just, you know, clicking around, you know, hockey DB or football reference, basketball reference, whatever it is, you could do that for a long time, right? Because you go to look up one thing, right? And, you know, it's, oh, how many points did uh, Mario Lemieux have in 1988-89? Whatever it is, right? And then you say, oh, I wonder who else was on that team. So you click through the team, and you're like, oh, yeah, that guy was on that team. Then you click through to his page, and you just spiral out of control. And then exactly what it, what you're saying, right, it's three hours later, you've got 30 tabs open in your browser. <laughs> you're just digging through, you know, Player X's WHL stats from 1979 or whatever the case may be. Yeah, and you start reliving some of those memories for yourself as a sports fan, and that's what we're asking you to to, to today, to do today, I should say. 650-650 or 960-960. What are the greatest individual seasons you've ever seen? You can talk about any sport you want, and we can get those submissions on the air. I promised you we would do it, so we will get some of those in now. We outlined some earlier in the day, and one of the first ones we went to for hockey, which some of our listeners have echoed, was Wayne Gretzky, 1982, 92 goals, 120 assists. He has 212 points that year, arguably the greatest season ever, even though he got 215 a few years later. He didn't have the goal total he did in 1982. Someone texted in, the great one wasn't strapping on the pads and throwing shutouts every few games, and that was <laughs> a reference to Shohei Otani because his season is so unique. And I, I saw other sportscasters across the country asking the same question. Is this the most incredible baseball season we've ever seen? And maybe it depends on your definition. I know Greg, who's back at Mission Control today, is a big baseball fan, Jamie, and I pitched that to him, pardon the pun, just prior to the show. And he said, no, nah, I still think Bonds in his prime was more impressive, but it all depends on what your definition of this is. Yeah, and we've had a couple of people text in Barry Bonds, and I'm glad that uh, Greg brought him up as well because, you know, no matter what kind of asterisk you want to put on it, those four Barry Bonds seasons where he just went absolutely supernova on the league, I think they have to be in this conversation, right, for most impressive seasons of all time, whether you're talking about baseball, whether you're talking about any sport, right? They're just – the numbers are staggering. You know, you look at 2001, 73 home runs, over 500 on base percentage – and then you could even look at the last one, I think, 2004. Okay, 45 home runs, but that's because nobody was pitching to him. And 45 home runs is still an incredible number. It's not 73, but that's because no one was pitching for him. He had 120 intentional walks that year. 120 intentional walks in 2004 because he terrified opposing managers and opposing pitchers that much. His on-base percentage was up over 600 that year. So, yeah, I get it. There was some outside help. He was on some substances that that you know helped him do what he was doing. But you just look at those stats stat lines, and it, it is. I agree with Greg. It's a bit of a toss up. Those years are incredible. It was wild. I can remember the breakdowns at that time, and they would show bonds, and basically it was this. There was one spot, and it was so precise and so exact. There was one spot where you could throw Barry Bonds a ball that was a strike that was probably going to get called that he wouldn't swing at because he was so disciplined. And he wouldn't hit it out of the park because of that. And so there was literally one spot in the strike zone where you could throw it, and it wasn't going to end up in, in a home run. Or if you threw it out of the strike zone, he was so disciplined at that point that he could walk. Like, you could not pitch to the guy. You can remember him getting walked with the bases loaded. Yeah. Intentionally. Yep. Not just, yep. oh, you know, I was, I was trying to make sure I didn't give up a grand slam. Nope. We're just going to give up one here because we don't want to give up four. 
Yeah, that's the the ultimate sign of how absolutely terrifying he was at his peak. And yeah, I know like intentional walks, not not exactly the sexiest stat ever, right? But yeah, in 2004, he only played 147 games, 120 intentional walks. That's almost once per game that people are just saying, yeah, you know what? We don't want any part of this whatsoever. You can go to first base. And he still managed to hit 45 home runs like that. Now, this isn't one athlete, but it's two. I think it's a good shout by Marcus and Gibsons, and it's been echoed by other texters as well. The home run race of 98 was so captivating, and that's Maguire and that's Sosa going head-to-head, and it's really true. That was an incredible season, and we all know that it's been tainted to a certain degree, depending on your viewpoint in subsequent years because of what we now know they were on and how you feel about that, but... I don't. I have never seen a year like that. Even Bonds in that chase didn't feel the same as McGuire and Sosa doing what they did that summer in '98. No, it didn't take over kind of mainstream news like that did. Like that was a huge deal, even for people that weren't particularly invested in sports. It dominated news coverage over that summer. So I agree. Again, maybe it's a little tainted now. But when you're just talking about those memorable seasons, yeah, it's two guys instead of one. It's a good shout-out from our listeners. It deserves to be in that conversation. The next time we're going to get something like that in hockey feels like Alex Ovechkin going after Gretzky when it starts to get close, assuming his health. And I know that's not an individual year the way that 98 in the home run chase was, but we'll get to that point as hockey fans. Did Ovechkin get one tonight? Like, did he get one tonight? Where's he at? How close is he now? We'll get there. Well, and you remember, Scotty, I mean, sports stations and, and even news broadcasts as they got closer to it and other baseball broadcasts, they were cutting away to yeah. Sosa and Maguire at bats, right? And I, I wonder if we'll see that. Oh, hey, the Capitals are going on a power play. We're going to show you 30 seconds here, you know, while we're in a TV timeout or whatever it is, because you want to see a potential Alex Ovechkin goal. This one comes in from both Go Jets Joe and Derek in Calgary. What about Solani scoring 76 as a rookie? Certainly won't ever see that again. That was an incredible season as well. Yeah, that's a really, really good one. And again, it's it's because it's a rookie, uh, he does it as a rookie, that it gets elevated, right? Because we've seen other people in the NHL surpass that goal, goal total not in their rookie season. But in terms of just accomplishments that will probably never be matched scoring that many as a rookie is a good one I want to get a couple of these in because I like where the where the texters are thinking we've had uh one person text in at least one oh we've had a couple of people text in excuse me rager one of them uh nominate Ray Ferraro's dominant season in 1983 in the WHL which you know I know you want to get this on (laughs) it was actually 83 84 but yeah 192 points in 72 games that's not bad including 108 goals for Ray Ferraro in his last year in the WHL and then this one is a favorite of mine and somebody else brought it up another major junior season Mario Lemieux in his draft year in the QMJHL, 282 points in 70 games. That is one of those things I will never get tired of flipping over to HockeyDB and seeing 282 points in 70 games in in the Quebec Major Junior League. It blows my mind. Yeah, Rob Brown getting 212 for the Camelot Blazers, which still stands as a WHL record. That one was pretty special. I got to witness that one as a youth growing up in Kamloops. That was incredible. Back to the Lemieux story for a second. I wasn't a huge Lemieux guy when he came into the league. Penguins weren't my team. Didn't really, you know, just love Mario Lemieux from the onset. If you remember, Lemieux didn't want to put on the Penguins sweater and refused to at the draft. He ultimately signed, and I got a lot of appreciation for him a few years later when I read a book about him, and it was during his career that the book came out, Jamie, referencing that final season of junior. 
And the one that I just kept going back to and rereading and re can this be possible? Going into his final game of that 282-point season, Lemieux trailed Pat LaFontaine for most goals ever in a season. In the leave the record was 130, and Lemieux was sitting on 127. So he needed a hat trick in that final game to catch LaFontaine. Getting a hat trick is asking a lot of anybody yep. in one single game, especially when the opposition is going to be keying on you. He scored six times. <laughs> he scored six goals. He just went out there and scored six goals and went... 130, that's fine. I'm going to be at 133 now. Best of luck beating that. It's nuts. Yeah, yeah that uh, that is absolutely crazy. Um, and I love that it kind of gives you the sense that, yeah, okay, he averaged four points a game in the queue that year. But if he like he might have been able to do more if he'd really put his mind to it. As crazy <laughs> as that is to say, like if you can go out and basically score six on demand, I don't know. It seems like maybe he wasn't even given full effort that year. It's wild. John in Vancouver texts in, bums of the months notwithstanding, and he referenced this because I talked about O.J. Simpson, and we generally don't talk about him for other reasons, but his his 2,000-yard season in 14 games, as far as sports accomplishments, is incredible. John asks, what did Mike Tyson's best stretch look like? It's so hard to compare because Mike Tyson in his prime as a heavyweight champion and a dominant one, he was fighting maybe three times a year. And so it's the frequency. And so yep. it's tough to say, well, this is the most dominant season because he knocked these guys out in this many seconds combined. But, yeah, Tyson was untouchable back in the day and must-see TV. If we're talking about just greatest peak as an athlete, right, and you're not limiting it to just one calendar year, but just the greatest peak, I think he's in that conversation. As you say, must-see TV, just annihilating anyone who came across his path. Unsigned texter, let's give some love to Bo. Bo Jackson, 1989, 30-plus home runs and 100-plus RBIs while having 950 yards rushing in 11 games. That's a damn great year. We talk about Otani, and these are the names that come up because he's doing something so unprecedented that you have to delve into the Bo Jacksons and the Deion Sanders of, well, we've never yep. seen anybody even try something like this. Yeah, and I believe in 1989, Deion Sanders played in the Super Bowl and the World Series, right, and was an elite athlete at both sports. So, you know, obviously he was always an elite defensive back, but that was probably his best baseball performance that year as well. That's in that conversation. And we've had a couple people in Calgary uh, text in Bo Jackson as well. One of the other ones that I wanted to bring up from Calgary, we had this discussion a little bit with Wilt Chamberlain, right, is, okay, look, we didn't see it. We can't say firsthand what it was like. But you just look at the numbers and it kind of overwhelms you. I mean, we've had a few people text in Babe Ruth, right? And, okay, you could choose so many different seasons of his career when you fire up baseball reference and go back and look at it. But the one that somebody brought up specifically, the stat, is he had two seasons where he individually hit more home runs than any other total team did. And I know we had this discussion a few years ago a lot when Steph Curry was kind of revolutionizing how the three-pointer is looked at in the NBA. To imagine someone now hitting more home runs than an entire team, that really gives you a sense of just how revolutionary Babe Ruth was at the time. And can you imagine those teams if there were, like, scrutinized press conferences back in those days? Well, we play small ball. Hey, you can't really yeah. compare us. <laughs> you, you can't compare us to that because we play small ball here, and, and we score runs. We just get it done in a completely different way. <laughs> Keep those texts coming in, 960, 960, 650, Let's get to what they're saying. News of the BC Lions' new ownership broke during our show yesterday. I know not both markets were consuming our product. 
in full yesterday, but we're all back together today. So many may not have heard Amar Doman, who was on the morning show in Vancouver today with Bick and the boss, talking about his excitement about purchasing the BC Lions and being the first first different owner in this market since 1997. And he was asked about the dwindling attendance numbers and about trying to attract fans and new fans to watch this product. Yeah, you know, first of all, I have a lot of, um, I would say, you know, business colleagues and connections in Vancouver and in British Columbia in general. Uh, I'm going to be leaning on a lot of people to get the excitement back out. Um, you know, I'll be giving people tickets at my cost uh, to get people back in to see the product that we have on the field. The, the dome's going to be open for every game unless it's pouring rain, which is great. Um, you know, having BC Place open, I think, is, uh, you know, the, the, the dome being closed a lot in summer, I never thought that made any sense. I think people in, in BC like to go out and, and be able to see the stars. These August, September nights are gorgeous, and um, having that open is going to help. We're going to try to do little things, really get the word out, and um, just, you know, we've got to start somewhere to get people coming back in because people do have a lot of options. But I think once they come in and get a flavor of what's happening and, and the team we have, uh, you know, they're going to come back. And um, we've got a long rebuild to go, but uh, we'll start somewhere and I'll start leaning on a lot of my friends and connections and uh, getting us back out there and putting money into promoting, which I think has been lacked. Not everybody listening to this show this morning hopes the BC Lions are going to win, but all of the CFL fans listening this morning, Jamie, can agree on this. Stronger ownership in every single market is desired. This appears to be stronger ownership. There's an enthusiasm and a boots-on-the-ground attitude. Watching Amar Doman yesterday, listening to him this morning, there's that glimmer in his eye of taking on this task. And listening to him speak, you can hear the enthusiasm. You can hear both the understanding that, yeah, it's a tough task, but that he's up to the challenge. He's excited that it's going to be a challenging task, which I think is exactly what you want to hear. And I was keeping an eye on our text message inbox here at the 650 side and, and seeing some reactions on Twitter. And I think the most important thing you can say about the interview is it got the fans excited, right? People were saying, wow, this is great. This is making me more excited about the CFL. I'm so I'm so happy we finally have an owner like this. Oh, the way you describe that, I feel like we need a Eugene Melnick drop a little bit later on in the show from <laughs> from between two sins. We just might get there. BC Lions, their first home game of this campaign, their first home game in forever goes tonight. Lions and Elks kick off week three in the CFL, 7 o'clock on the West Coast, 8 o'clock Mountain Time this evening. Masai Ujiri, he's always got a glimmer in his eyes, always got some enthusiasm to his speech. He has signed on, continuing on with the Toronto Raptors. There was a question for quite some time. Says he wants to be with the Raptors forever. I don't know if that will actually come to fruition. He was asked yesterday during his press conference about how to construct this team and do they go down the road, the road of a super team at some point in time. Here's what he had to say. Honestly, we're going to create our own direction. You know, like we don't have to go with the wave of what the NBA is doing. We're such a copycat league, you know, like, um, and um, we have to, I think, ride our own opportunities. And for now, our opportunities are, I think, building uh, around the young players that we have and letting them grow. Um, so um, we have young, very young veterans. They are almost at the same age as when we had uh, Kyle and Demar. So that's Fred. Uh, that's OG, that's Pascal, 
Um, we, we want to build around these guys and uh, the Bouchers and uh, Ken Burches. All these players, I think, they have a level that they need to get to. And then there's the young crop. I think you guys saw um, coming up that uh, we just drafted Scotty Barnes and uh, Delano. We just um, got uh, Precious in a trade. Um, we, Malachi, all these guys we want to really like um, develop in some kind of way and I think we have um, some sort of good history uh, from doing that. Our three main players come from our development program so I said it here when I sat here eight years ago, we're going to develop players and we're going to build uh, on that. And I'm saying it again that we're going to continue to develop these players and we're going to find a way to win a championship here based on our develop, the development of our players. And whatever comes um, uh, from that, uh, sometimes trades, sometimes um, you acquire through free agency, we're just not going to sit here and cry that players are not coming here. Yeah, that's not what we're about. We've, I think we've gone past, past that. If it was a big market NBA team, and I'm not talking about the actual market size, but I'm talking about what's considered a desired market yeah. in the NBA, I'm sure Masai Ujiri would be just fine with the Kevin Durant saying, I'd like to <laughs> yep. come there and I'm going to bring a couple of my buddies. He'd be just fine with that. If I'm a Raptors fan, I like hearing, just as an NBA fan, I'm not even a Raptors fan, but just as an NBA fan, I like hearing teams that say, there are multiple ways to win, yep. and that would be reinforced by what we saw this year in the National Basketball Association. I find it just refreshing as a sports fan to hear a general manager or a decision maker like Masai Ujiri, an executive, say, yeah, we're going to do our own thing. We don't have to copy what everyone else is doing. What do we see every year after the Stanley Cup is handed out going into the offseason in the NHL, Scotty? We hear over and over other general managers from around the league reference that Stanley Cup winner as being the blueprint for what they're trying to build, right? And sometimes it's extremely literal where you're saying, hey, we're trying to do what Tampa did, and that means giving Barkley Goodrow or Blake Coleman a big money deal because they were big parts of what the Tampa Bay Lightning just did. But we see it every summer where, where the NHL general managers say, oh, look at uh, how St. Louis just won the Stanley Cup. That's what we're trying to do. It doesn't mean it's invalid to try to take something from, you know, a Stanley Cup champion, but it's very refreshing to hear somebody say, that's not the only way things get done, right? We can do things differently. There are other ways to win. Especially in the NBA. Because in the NHL, we've seen for years that there are multiple ways to win, despite what some hockey fans will tell you. And it's such a tough tournament, and you need health, and you need breaks, you need not even a great goaltender. You just need great goaltending at that time of the year, and we've seen some unlikely heroes rise over the course of it. In the NBA, it did feel for a little while like, well, if you don't do this, you're not getting a chip. We'll talk chips a little later on in the show as well. There is still one on the shoulder of Draymond Green. There's still one on the shoulder of Kevin Durant. They had a conversation yesterday. We're going to play a part of it for you a little bit later on in the program today. Keep those texts coming in. They are smashing in strong right now. 650-650-960-960. The Seattle Kraken have to do things a different way. Jeff Baker on his assessment of what's been done to date and what's coming perhaps COVID restriction-wise or the way they approach things in Seattle as the mask mandate revisits Washington State right now. Jeff Baker, the Seattle Times, next with Rintoul and Dot. A lot of us grew up in the 80s, and we've come a long way from that music-wise, but the 80s, for many of us, set the stage for those huge, uplifting, crowd-pleasing tracks, and those never get old. You'll find songs like the one you're hearing right now 
on the Headliners playlist on Apple Music, plus more fist pumpers and rock anthems. Listen to Headliners playlist on Apple Music. Scott Rintoul, Jamie Dodd, we're going to talk some hockey here in a few minutes' time. Jeff Baker of the Seattle Times will delve into the Kraken a little bit. I see some online debate, some hand-wringing that Austin Matthews is on the cover of NHL 22, Jamie Dodd. Yeah, well, especially since it's his, I believe, second time in three years. I, yeah. I will admit it's not something I pay a ton of attention to, but it is a little funny. You just say, hey, what about Austin Matthews again? Well, we haven't done that in two years. Uh, why not? Why not go back to that? It's interesting because Connor McDavid, for example, is nowhere near the polarizing player that Austin no. Matthews is. Matthews does not have the same type of widespread appeal that other superstars in the games do. In the game do. And part of that is because of Toronto. Part of that is his personality, which some see as aloof, standoffish. There are some fans that were certainly lost after his his off-ice incident and the way he handled it two seasons ago. There are a lot of reasons, and all of those reasons start to come up when he gets put front and center on a, on a place where a lot of hockey fans spend their time. Yeah, it's polarizing is the right word, right? And I think sometimes that even seeps through and people start questioning, you know, his overall impact and his talent, which I don't think is fair. I think he's a phenomenally talented and productive NHL player. But yeah, it's wrapped up in all of that. His attitude, the fact that he plays for the Leafs, the fact that because he's American, he does get so much attention like this, you know, maybe more so than some other comparable Canadian players. So I, I get where fans are coming from. We got a buyout in the National Hockey League. The Detroit Red Wings have bought out the final year of Franz Nielsen's contract, signed back in 2016, a six-year pack that was worth over $5 million per season. He will be bought out by Steve Eiserman and the Detroit Red Wings. Those details coming down right now, the story will be updated along the way, but just a little National Hockey League news to pass along your way. One of the uh, the parting gifts from Ken Holland to the Detroit Red Wings, right? That Franz Nielsen contract is uh, officially, well, not officially off the books, but he will no longer be with the Red Wings. We have this person texting in. The song that I was referencing, it's not from the 80s. It's Greta Van Fleet. Yes, I know. That was the point of the read, which is a little bit confusing. We talked about that during the break, actually. <laughs> the point was where some of those crowd-pleasing anthems got going for a lot of people was in the 80s and that's one thing despite music changing jamie that has not changed you can find songs like that on the headliners playlist on apple music was the point we were trying to get across yes yes it's songs of that that harken back to the 80s i guess is what we're going for exactly we will get another announcement in later on this segment chris in the ridge yeah i want to mention that no we don't normally tout corporate corporate sponsors that aren't actually sponsors but it's an important day so i will get to that a little bit later on in the segment but we're going to head down to seattle right now scott rental jamie dodd now joined by jeff baker who writes for the seattle times he has a very good story up right now about jamie alexiak on the seattle times you can find him on twitter at jeff baker times jeff thank you very much for taking the time today how are you i'm doing well i'm doing well hope you guys are uh, doing okay up there too we certainly are, though things are ever-changing. And though many people thought, hey, we're past this and the pandemic's behind it, I think any of us who are in the know know that's not actually true. And certainly in Washington State, the mass mandate for indoor events and gatherings has come back this week. Where is that leading to for the Kraken as they get going with their inaugural season here in a couple of months? 
Well, I mean, that's an excellent question. I mean, the, the priority for the Kraken, I mean, they just, them and their partners just spent a billion dollars American uh, refurbishing what used to be Key Arena into Climate, climate Pledge Arena. They didn't refurbish it. They basically rebuilt an, an entirely brand new arena under the roof and so they uh, under the old roof and so they need to recoup some money to start paying off all of that and and so what that means is they want to get as many fans as possible into this building right from the get-go the last thing they need is to have it reduced to 70 percent capacity or 50 percent capacity or whatever you know gets decided we, we've had capacity limits here before in town uh, as recently as a few months ago uh, for, for uh, outdoor sporting events and, and indoor, but we just don't have that many indoor sporting events here anymore. And, and so, um, you know, that 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 definitely isn't beyond the realm of possibility. And so I think, you know, what you saw up in Canada with the Winnipeg Jets enforcing vaccine mandates on fans and, and as well as masking mandates on fans, I think that was a preemptive strike over there just in case. You know, some of, some of the Manitoba health authorities start thinking, uh, hey, you know what, we might start closing this arena and limiting fan capacity again. They don't want that here. And so they're, they're keeping close watch on what the, uh, the government here is deciding in the state of Washington. And, and you know, there's ongoing conversations, but uh, I, I think you'll definitely see the Kraken opt for some kind of vaccine mandate and, and masking mandate. Uh, you know, as opposed to having the state step in and say, no, you got to you got to only have half capacity in your arena. I mean, that's the last thing they need. They're launching an expansion franchise. Fans have been sitting on ticket deposits for three and a half years here. They, they don't want to be told that, uh, sorry, you didn't make the 70 percent cut or whatever. So that would be a PR disaster. And, and, you know, in addition to that, this team needs to start making some money back. And, and, and the arena investors has to have to start making some money back to cover all the costs that they put into this. Yeah, there's an ethical part of that conversation. There's a health part of that conversation. There's a business part of that conversation as well. And everything you're saying sounds very logical to me, and I know my co-host as well. Yeah, of course you would do that. Why wouldn't you? Different markets handle that type of thing differently. How will that play in Seattle? It's going to play very well here, I suspect. I mean, Seattle's no different from any other city in America or, or in Canada, for that matter. You've got You've got your minority here that, that, you know, no matter what stats you show them on COVID and no matter, uh, you know, how many science, how much scientific and medical evidence there is to support masking and support vaccination, there, there's a vocal minority that will always uh, get their backs up and start chirping about freedom and, and, and this and that kind of thing. I'm not going to bother even getting into those debates because it's not a, a two-sided debate in my book. There, there's there's logic in living in the real world, and then there's living in this alternative universe that, that too many people are these days. And, and But I think the majority of Seattleites uh, fall in favor of the science, in favor of the medical approach. Um, this hockey team, you mentioned the ethics of it. I mean, this team has, has gone above and beyond in, in hiring, um, you know, women, hiring uh, people of color to, to positions that weren't necessarily all that commonly filled by, by people like that in, in the sports world in general, never, never mind hockey. Uh, you know, they, they, they've kind of tried to be out front, setting the trend on that. They, they've been outspoken on climate issues. Uh, the, the arena's known Climate Pledge Arena for a reason. It's not the catchiest name, but, I mean, they're doing it for, for a reason. Um, and, and they did that with their naming rights partner with Amazon. And, and so, you know, they're not afraid to buck the trend and they're not afraid to be progressive on issues. And, and so I really don't see them caving into this vocal minority uh, when it comes to vaccines and, and when it comes to, to masking. I don't think they're going to let themselves be pushed around by that. 
Jeff, I want to look at the the hockey situation for the Kraken going into their inaugural season. We've had a bit of distance now from the expansion draft and, and free agency. With that distance, how would you assess uh, how the Seattle Kraken and Ron Francis went about putting their initial roster together? I think they very quietly built a team that's going to be a playoff contender. I, I think, um, you know, like any other team, they need some stuff to go right. And, and if everything goes right, I mean, I think they'll be in pretty good shape. If everything goes wrong, yeah, there could be a, a problem. And, and when I say that, I mean, I did a story a couple of weeks back about how, you know, if you want to be an optimist, this team potentially has about eight or nine guys that can score 20 goals on the roster. And I'm not just, you know, rolling dice on that. I mean, they're guys that were on pace for those kinds of seasons last year or have done it multiple times in their career. Realistically, that's not going to happen. I, I don't think any team's done it in you know, over 27 years, had, had that many players score 20. But, I mean, realistically, they only need about four or five of those guys to, to score 20 goals, and, and, and they'll be right in the thick of the playoff line, if not in the playoffs, if that happens. So, I mean, that's where the biggest consternation is, is around their scoring. But, I mean, you know, other than Yanni Gord being hurt, um, and being out, sorry, following uh, shoulder surgeries out until about November, more realistically, December, um, you know, other than that, they, 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 they should be okay on offense. Um, and, and, you know, never mind the fact that they've got so many of these guys that play two ways, um, you know, that, and, and as we saw in the last postseason in, in the playoffs, I mean, these, these two-way forwards, these heavy four-checking teams, uh, you, know, you know, we saw whether it was, was Vegas, whether it was Montreal, I, I mean, Tampa Bay as well, they're underrated physically in, in that department. Um, they're not just a scoring team. I mean, that, that's what went, the Islanders, that's what wins in the playoffs. So they've got a lot of guys that can do that uh, in the forward position. Back, you know, on the blue line, they're fine. They should be okay. Goaltending looks great. They got, uh, you know, between Grubauer and, and Chris uh, Drieger, I mean, they got one of the best one-two combos around. So so they look like a solid team to start with. I think the latest odds I've seen, uh, you know, their they're projected finish third, I think it was, in the, in the Pacific Division. That kind of surprised me. And they're, I think they had the sixth highest odds on bet online for, for the Western Conference. Last time I looked, I mean, they, they quietly built a decent team. Could they add more scoring? Probably, sure. But they've got $9 million in cap space. So they've got the room to do that and keep some flexibility going forward. So I think stealthily they've had a pretty good offseason, despite the fact that, you know, the, the, the early, um, the early uh, reviews after the expansion draft weren't all that favorable. I think when you take a closer look at it, they've actually done more than a lot of people gave them credit for. One of the issues that has come up for the last expansion team, the Vegas Golden Knights, and of course they've been extremely successful, more so than anyone expected in their first few seasons in the league, but one of the issues for their roster has been finding centers and especially high-end centers. And it's understandable, right? Those are so rare. Teams not exactly uh, aren't going to be lining up to give them to a new franchise. Is that the kind of thing that could be a potential hiccup for the Kraken this year as well, that that struggle to find those those high-end centers at the top of your lineup? Oh, for sure. I mean, that's probably number one in, in their list of potential hiccups. I mean, number two would be if you're optimistic about 20 goal scores, it can go the other way, too. You know, and, and when you build a team like that, when you build a team without like a 30 or 40 goal scorer, but a bunch of 20 goal guys, you know, it doesn't take much to have the pendulum swing in reverse. And, and so, you know, if those guys suddenly score, you know, 12 goals each or 15, then you got a problem. Uh, center wise, um, yeah, it, it's especially with Yanni Gord out. I mean, Gord projects to be their, their top line center when, when he, he's actually healthy. Right now, they're counting on Alex Winberg, who's basically a third liner they got from Florida, who had a breakout year last year. But, 
you know, it's asking a lot to have him be the top line guy. And and so there's there's some question marks around that. Now they did draft Matty Beneers, number two overall. Um, you know, and whether he, he actually there's a small chance he could start in the NHL this year or more likely he goes back to the University of Michigan. But that's a guy they're looking at for the future, clearly, to be on, on one of their top lines. So so the situation can change relatively quickly in the mid to long term for this team. I think short term, they, they know there's going to be some pain in the center position, and, and there's no two ways about it. I mean, they, they've got a bunch of guys that project as, you know, really good third liners and, and you know, maybe second liners, but not really top line guys that, or, or haven't proven themselves as top line guys yet. And, and so I, I think the best is yet to come for that team, but certainly if they could pick up a center somewhere, um, you know, right before the season starts by a, by a trade, obviously, uh, I think that would be, uh, I, I think that would be advantageous for them. Jeff Baker, the Seattle times joining us today to talk Seattle Kraken here with Rintoul and Dodd. As someone who grew up in Montreal, you are very well aware that every person in this country has an opinion on hockey. And there were plenty who criticized some of the selections in the expansion draft or some of the free agent signings, is there any part of the approach at all, whether it was a particular selection or some of the ways that Ron Francis operated in free agency that was curious to you? Oh, obviously, yes. Uh, a lot of it was curious to me. I mean, I, I expected them to spend a lot more in, in that uh, in that expansion draft, and not just for the sake of spending money, for the sake of getting some more proven goal scoring. You know, they left a guy like James Van Rienstijk on the table. I mean, that's a guy that, that can score goals for you. He probably would have been probably could have been the leading scorer on this team had they selected him, but they didn't. They, they took Carson Twarinski instead, and nobody's really quite sure where Twarinski fits in the whole thing. He looks to be like a, like a fourth-line winger for this team or maybe more likely, you know, headed for the AHL. I mean, there was a big discrepancy there. You know, they took uh, Morgan Geeky instead of Jake Bean. Everybody figured they would take Jake Bean. Um, you know, that, that seemed to be the, the obvious no-brainer choice, but they went with Morgan Geeky instead. Now, Geeky plays center. He played it really well in the minors. Uh, you know, limited experience in the NHL, but on this team, you know, he, he could be a third-line center for this team. So, uh, you know, some of that starts to make sense. I, I think when you look at the whole package, what this team, and, and everybody forgets that, including me sometimes, is, is just how much this team has invested in analytics and, and, and how much of a seat at the table its analytics is going to get, uh, in addition to scouting, of course. But, but you know, some of, these, some, some of their approach, and I think just their global, global approach um, going into this is very analytics-driven. And, and what I mean by that is, I, I, you know, I've been told they've done projections going forward multiple seasons to see where teams are going to be at with the salary cap crunch that, that's coming. And, and, you know, the flat cap's going to stay there for several years, and so there's going to be teams hitting a wall, not just now, but, but down the road, it's going to be even worse for these teams. And the Kraken knows that they've got projections and they want to have, you know, the flexibility going forward to really price some good players away from these teams and not be tripped up by their own salary cap. And so they haven't, they haven't gone out and squandered even a dime on players when they can sort of try to find the equivalent for a couple of million less. Um, and, you know, some of it's going to be a dice roll. Yeah. You'd rather get the proven guy. Than, than maybe a guy who you're, you're crossing your fingers on and hoping. But, I, you know, I'm sure and I know that they have access to analytics that are proprietary and not at all what we see on, on, on our favorite websites. And, and, you know, they're looking at this, and they're, you can tell that they're going to get guys. They're trying to get guys where their projections are out there and their simulations are out there. And, and they know that they, they have a reasonably good chance of hoping they get equivalent value to some of these bigger names that they passed up on. 
While none of us saw the success of Vegas coming, the one thing everyone agreed on after the expansion draft was that Marc-Andre Fleury was the face of the franchise, and he quickly became that. Is there an obvious face of the franchise in Seattle? Does somebody stand out to you from that from that standpoint? Not not obvious to the degree of a Marc-Andre Fleury or, or what a Carey Price could have been. I mean, you know, Philip Grubauer clearly has established himself as one of the league's elite goaltenders. Uh, you know, not for a long period of time. It's only been a couple of seasons, but you know, he he, he was a very visible part of that Colorado Avalanche team that many thought could have won the Stanley Cup last year, and now he's coming here in the prime of his career. So he's he's the most obvious franchise player right now. Now, he, all that said, he's not exactly the guy you you think of as a franchise player, just in terms of you know public relations of being outgoing. You know, he he's known for being quite reserved. Um, not a bad guy, just a guy, you know, whose personality takes a while to warm up to people and, and to, to really let loose and, and be uh, that guy out in public. And, and certainly we've heard from him once, I think it is, since uh, since this whole thing, since the free agent signing went down. But you don't really you don't really see that much of him. I, I don't know that he'll be what a Carey Price could have been here, although Price isn't exactly a media darling in Montreal either. But, you know, Price has done a lot He's beyond the media. I mean, he's done a lot. To, 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 you know, good things for the Montreal Canadiens with the public as well. Um, so, I mean, there's a chance there for Grubauer. I think there's a chance for Yanni Gord to really become, a, a, you know, a star here in town. Not not necessarily an NHL superstar, but maybe, you know, maybe he moved, maybe he becomes a 30-goal guy in, in a, in a top-line role here once he's healthy. I mean, he played hurt the last two seasons. Uh, that's why he had a shoulder surgery. I mean, he's still popping 20 goals. I mean, he's a guy that, uh, you know, scored, uh, I think it was 24-25 his rookie season. So, I mean, he's a guy who could be a 30-goal guy. He, he seems like he's got the personality to really become a fan favorite here. So that would be my dark horse right now to become the face of the franchise. Uh, and, and, you know, also it's possible they don't have one yet. It's possible they're going to go out and sign one in the next year or two. You know, I would normally say Mark Giordano, but I don't know how long he's going to be here, uh, you know, possibly he'll be here until February or March. So, I mean, we don't know. Uh, he's on a one-year deal. So, uh, and he's 38. He's going to be, you know, 38. So, yeah, yeah, I don't see that becoming the face of the franchise. He'll, he'll be a popular guy here. But I think going forward in the future, I think Grubauer would be my, my pick right now. And then Yanni Gord as well, once he's healthy. You alluded to it there, Jeff, the possibility that Mike Mark Giordano, you know, only with one year left on his deal before he hits unrestricted free agency, that that could be a trade. Depending on how the season shakes out, we see closer to the deadline. And I know, you know, they invested heavily on the blue line in free agency and in the expansion draft. And I think the expectation for a lot of people was that they might try to flip some of those defensemen to add to other parts of their lineup. Hasn't really happened. Do you think that's still a possibility, something we could see either leading up to the season or over the course of the season? You know, not just at the trade deadline, but making that quote-unquote hockey trade at some point during the year? Yeah, I mean, I did think that Vince Dunn would be a candidate that but now i'm not so sure i mean vince dunn right now might be the closest thing they have to a power play quarterback <laughs> you know what i mean it's not like they went out and signed uh dougie hamilton or anything like that i mean you know so uh you know they have Giordano who, who can who can be a decent offensive defenseman and, and you know he's not as fast as he used to be they, vince dunn though he's up and coming they just signed him for four million a year uh you know so i'm not necessarily sure they're going to flip him uh, he might actually be part of the long-term plan here. And definitely, uh, you know, for their power play, he's the guy I think of as being their quarterback and uh, a good part of that. So, 
Um, I, I, I was actually just trying to think of that this morning, you know, who are some of the trade pieces they might have, um, you know, because they definitely have size on their blue line. I mean, we know that. I mentioned, you know, I wrote about Alexiak. I mean, they, they've got Carson Soucy. I mean, they, they've got some guys that can punish guys on the blue line. Um, it, it's just, you know, as far as dynamic puck-moving guys, I mean, Vince Dunn, and his name's been tossed around, like I said, a lot as, as potential trade bait, but I, I, I think they'd like to keep a guy like that just to give their, their blue line a lot more variety and not make it a one-dimensional, you know, physical, more stay-at-home type uh, of defense. I, I, I like I like having done there. We're less than two months oh. away from real games. Jeff, we're looking forward to it. Your coverage has been great, and I look forward to that excellent coverage continuing at Jeff Baker times. You can follow him on Twitter and you can check out his pieces there. Thank you very much for your time today, Jeff. No problem. Great being on with you guys. I'll talk to you soon. That is Jeff Baker. One of many who are excited about this expansion franchise hitting the Pacific Northwest of the United States. And we had one texter text in during that interview saying, Hey, this is nuts. Nosebleed seats and pledge furniture plus arena, obviously taking a shot at the name for the Kraken <laughs> opening game is $1,130 U.S., that's B.S., and as I replied to that texter, look, people are going to ask big dollars for milestone events. This will be one of them. There's only one first home game ever. Yep. It happens to be against the Vancouver Canucks, who are the obvious geographical rival, and uh, a team that has a fan base, Jamie, that will also want to be a part of that. Yep. And there might be some people out there willing to spend whatever it takes to be at that game. Well, that's the thing. As you said to the texter, right? Marquee events, you can charge marquee prices. And the NH, we have seen consistently that the fans in Seattle are very, very hyped up for the Kraken to start playing, right? And then you factor in the whole thing of built-up demand just to go to hockey games, to go to sporting events, right? So that factors into this as well. If people feel comfortable going, I think you are going to see people meet those prices because it's a one-off and because it's going to have that kind of celebratory feel, right, of the NHL getting back, you know, for, for the first time in Seattle, but just getting back to live sporting events. So it is a crazy number. I agree with the texture there. I don't think I would be interested in paying that for a nosebleed seat, but I know there are people who will be interested in paying it. This is not a climate pledge, but it's a personal pledge that I made to Chris in the Ridge earlier this segment. I will make good on that. Chris texted us saying, hey, can you guys make an announcement about Beat MS Day at A&W? And we're making that right now. It's lunchtime for a lot of people. Maybe you feel like a teen burger today, and you'll feel a lot better about grabbing one, knowing that $2 from every teen burger sold goes toward MS. Christine Sinclair, national treasure, greatest soccer player this country has ever produced. She is one of the faces of this campaign. Her mother affected by MS. She will be on Tim and Friends today as well. So, yes, Jamie, I am happy to put that message out there to the greater community. I think I lost Jamie. I hope he's back for the next segment. He's the I'm Shohei. back. I'm back, Scott. Okay, you're back. He's the Shohei Otani of this program. We're going to talk a little Shohei Otani next. Ricky Romero. How would he try to pitch to Shohei Otani? He's not just a good hitter. He's a unique hitter as well. We'll get into that and more with Ricky Romero, former Jays pitcher next right here on Rinto and Sermon with Jamie Dodd.